Hello, it's Paul Scott here, UK small caps investor and commentator um, and writer of the Small Cap Valley Reports on Stockopedia.com with Graham Neary, an occasional help from Roland Head. Right, it's Saturday 23rd of December, almost Christmas. Exciting. Um, I'm going to be hopping on a train shortly to go and see my family in Cheshire and uh, enjoy catching up with all of them. So really looking forward to that. Um, we've got a fancy dress theme this year of Barbie. So, uh, unfortunately, because I've, I'm coming direct from London, not from Bournemouth, I haven't got my fancy dress outfit with me. So, um, I'll have to be the stooge just sitting there in normal clothing, I think. Never mind, I'm sure we can find a wig or something in the dressing up box. For, uh, right, back to business. Okay, we're fairly quiet. We, well, it gradually petered out this week, as you, as you would expect in the um, run-up to Christmas. I mean, the most striking thing is really um, <clears throat> that we've had a huge Santa rally this year. Uh, not really words I expected to particularly come, come out with, but as you know, I've been bullish since about, well, pretty much all year, but particularly since September, where I thought we'd reached a turning point. Um, just because valuations became, especially on small and mid caps, became so irrationally cheap that the value was just too obvious to ignore. So I hope, I hope uh, listeners have, have remained, uh, you know, have taken advantage of this big rally. Trouble is, if you're sitting on the sidelines in cash, as I always say, you'll you you'll very often miss the best part of the rally. So that's why I think we've carefully picked great value companies with solid balance sheets and good management and so on i think it pays to be to be to to sit tight through market downturns which always pass they always do so anyway i'm glad that um <clears throat> that my sort of investment overview has been proven correct so that is always very pleasing and the reasons were very obvious really that inflation we knew was going to come down rapidly because of the one-off factors energy crisis all triggered a whole sort of domino effect of higher prices for for fertilizer and then food you know we knew those factors were going to wash out of the figures so it wasn't just wishful thinking to expect inflation to come down it was pretty obvious which again i've been saying all year on that point um, didn't take deep analysis to see that that, that inflation would come down rapidly, <clears throat> as it has been everywhere, pretty much. Um, and I don't see any structural reason at all why um, inflation in the UK should be any higher than anywhere else. Anyway, that's um, that's come through in the figures recently. Uh, UK inflation dropped to 3.9%, which is, you know, not that much above the 2% arbitrary target, is it? And we're, we're definitely over the worst. Um, although I do wonder how that sits with the um, very large scheduled increases in uh, benefits and pensions that have been penciled in for, well, not penciled in, have been uh, announced to happen in April. Those are going to be hugely above inflation when they happen. It's sort of eight, nine, ten percent ballpark for increases in pensions and benefits and living wage, which I would suggest is going to really um, give a substantial boost to consumer demand and to consumer spending from April onwards, and will benefit from the two percent drop in NIC in uh, from January. So I would say getting it trying to get ahead of the curve here, I would say that we're going from a consumer squeeze and a crisis into a potential consumer boom. Because you know, you think about it, people go on living wage, which triggers 
sort of rises further up the pay scale for everyone trying to maintain the differential, if they're getting nearly 10% in April, which they will be, um, you know, inflation by that point might be 3%. So that's 7% ahead of inflation. It's a huge pay rise coming through the pipeline. That's why I think we should be setting ourselves up for a consumer rebound in 2024. And that's one of my main themes for the coming year. That's what the data is suggesting, isn't it? It's not just wishful thinking. So much lower UK inflation has triggered a huge drop in uh, bond yields, which, of course, and particularly the, the UK 10-year government uh, guilt has dropped very, very sharply, which I think that's the one that feeds through into mortgage rates. I had a quick look on Money Supermarket again yesterday. Uh, other price comparison sites do exist, of course. Um <clears throat> And the mortgage rates are getting much more competitive because I've got two smallish mortgages, as I mentioned before, that are coming up for refinancing in March. And I've held back because I thought, well, I see interest rates coming down and mortgage rates coming down earlier than the market expects. And um, I'm pleased I did hold back because I didn't want to lock into a fixed rate of five or six percent. I thought, no, I think those rates will come down and I'd rather just pay in a floating variable rate for a few months while I bide my time. And uh, again, that looks to have been uh, a good call. The Fed leading the way on interest rates, of course, now flagging, I think, three interest rate cuts in 2024. As always, Andrew Bailey at the Bank of England just talks tough, talks tough, talks tough. That's all, that's all he's got in his repertoire, basically. But they'll be forced to follow the Fed, I would imagine, in 2024. So we can safely ignore what um, the Bank of England says, I think. Okay, that's ticked off those things. So yeah, consumer squeeze to a consumer boom is my one of my main things. Now, markets generally in the UK, there's been a huge rally in mid caps. I see the mid cap index has risen 17% in two months. So that really is fabulous. I think that's more indicative of UK businesses rather than the FTSE 100, which is dominated by a few large banks and um, pharmaceuticals and mining companies and oil and gas, obviously. So very encouraging to see that huge rally in mid-caps. Again, blink and you miss it. <clears throat> You've got to be in it to win it. Various other slogans that I can't think of. Uh, even AIM has rebounded from, uh, what's that? It's now 9% down year-to-date at 7.54. Roughly 9% down year-to-date, but still down, of course. AIM has really been beaten up this year. But, of course, you've got all those lovely bargains in there, selectively. A lot of the companies in AIM, as we always say, are complete rubbish. But some of them, a couple of hundred of them, are good. And it doesn't really matter to me that whether they're listed on AIM or fully listed. It doesn't matter for my purposes. We're getting all these takeover bids still coming through, which just reinforces the cheapness of the UK market. Sooner or later, something has to give. Uh, and it's, I think you're just going to maybe have a final clear out of, of, of uh, forced sellers. And then we're into a new bull market, is my prediction for 2024. So there we go. Uh, don't ask me to put any figures on, on it, because I don't know. It's all guesswork, educated guesswork. And of course, macroeconomic factors can happen that derail everything, as we saw with, uh, the, with Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It triggered a whole series of, of really major macroeconomic effects. Now, my own personal 2023 uh, portfolio has done incredibly well. That is currently the, my main list of shares, which was my top 20 share ideas for this year, is up 16% year to date. 
versus 9% down on AIM, and they're mainly AIM shares. So that's a 25% outperformance. Absolutely delighted with that. I think, what does it prove? Well, I think it just proves that if you go for fairly uh, <coughs> decent value, stroke a GARP, that's growth at reasonable price, type of shares with sound balance sheets, that you're not going to do badly, even in a bad year. It should uh, it should outperform. Now the only trouble is with those types of cheapest shares, is that um, you know in a roaring bull market they may not perform as well as the more speculative shares. So thing depending on market conditions, different types of shares outperform. But 2023 was certainly a good year for value stroke GARP shares, which of course is what we write about in the small cap value reports. And we've covered a total of 600 unique companies in it. So we stray well into mid-cap territory and we're covering nearly half of the entire UK listed market now, which is pretty remarkable, I think you'll agree. So there's something in there for, for everyone in the small cap value reports. And I'm, you know, we've had a record year in terms of our output and um, I think we've done a bloody good job, even though I say so myself. Right, that's the preamble out, out of the way. Looking at the individual reports for this week. So this is covering week commencing 18, Monday 18th of December. So Monday's report, we only covered two shares, but we looked into them in a fair bit of depth, which I think is more <coughs> useful than doing scattergun coverage of uh, a lot of dross. So we picked out the best companies, as what we normally do. Now I looked at Hollywood Bowl, B-O-W-L. This is the UK's uh, largest temp in bowling alleys group traded remarkably well over the last few years. I've always raised the question of whether that was a bit of a rebound after the lockdowns ended, but it doesn't seem to be. Um, anyway, I remain very positive on the share, so I've marked it as green on our traffic light system. Uh, this was final results for September 2023. Uh, 490 million market cap, so, you know, getting into mid-cap territory, depending on how you define your, your size limits. Uh, very, very, very strongly cash generative business. Um, little working capital uh, required. I also flag up that the balance sheet actually is not particularly strong, but it doesn't need to be because all they've really got is fixed assets at the top. But in the middle section, the working capital was practically nothing because it doesn't really have inventories other than, you know, a few drinks and a bit of food in the fridges and so on. Um, and it doesn't really have receivables because it's mainly selling for cash. Um, and then, but against that, you've got cre creditors, trade creditors, you know, the money that'll be owed to the bank, uh, to, sorry, to HMRC and to, you know, accrued holiday pay and all those sorts of things are in trade creditors. So it runs um, a, a deficit on working capital, but that's completely normal for the type of business. So actually net assets is largely cash. It's sitting on a cash pile of 53 million quid. And they're earning interest income on that now, of course, with interest rates being higher. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I really like Hollywood Bowl. I have to say they're still trading well. I mean, the, the like for like sales increases are below inflation, but they're still enough to um, mean that profits went up again. And they adjust out the VAT boost to the prior figures, which I think is bona fide. If you're looking for underlying performance, then you should be stripping out uh, one-offs like that, um, the pandemic support that they got where the, they were allowed to keep, I think, about 8 million quid worth of the VAT in the prior year, which didn't repeat. So, yeah, it's fine to adjust that out. Um, 
Yeah, so the statutory profit is slightly down, actually, on the prior, but um, stripping out the VAT boost, it was profitability was up 20%, and I think that's the, the figure to focus on. And the valuation is still reasonable, you know, even though the shares have had a very good run, and the dividend yield, including a, a smallish special dividend, is 5.1%, the PE is 132 Uh so, if you're looking for a quality cash-generative business, paying healthy divvies with a healthy balance sheet, I think uh, Hollywood Bowl is a good choice. But obviously, do your own research. <clears throat> and I do flag up, I always try to think about what, what negatives could there possibly be. Uh, the, the main one is that obviously it's a very high gross margin business because a lot of the revenue is for bowling, which of course has pretty much 100% gross margin because it's a service, not a, uh, actually selling a physical product. And if you look at things like drinks and food for these type of outlets, it's things like burgers and chips, isn't it, which is very high gross margin, even if you sell it fairly cheaply, as, as, as Hollywood Bowl seems to do. Um, anyway, I've just said here, it's it's ridden, ridden out the cost of living crisis with a plomb. Nice word, that one. Um, uh, yeah, but possible downside risk if there's, if people suddenly decide they're bored with bowling and want to, uh, go off and do something different. But, um, as the UK's leading operator, I think, uh, Hollywood Bowl, Bowl is very convincing. Also, bear in mind, it's, it's, it's acquired, uh, a smallish business in Canada, the vast majority of its revenue is in the UK, but Canada gives it an additional line of growth. Um, and these sites, I haven't been to one actually, I must go to a Hollywood Bowl to mystery shop it, could be fun. They, uh, they've got quite a lot going on there other than just the bowling, um, so um, they're very large sites as well. I'd quite like it if they bought some freeholds. It's the properties are mainly leased, which mm, I, I prefer freeholds, but some people don't. Anyway, Graham looked at moving on from Hollywood Bowl. We like that very much. Anyway, moving on, Graham looked at Keyword Studios, a bit larger than we usually cover, market cap of 1.1 billion. I think he was just amber on that one. I don't want to speak for Graham, anyway, as always. So see Monday the 18th of December's report if you're interested in Keyword Studio. Graham looked at that one. Oh, actually, Tuesday was quite busy. Tuesday, 19th of December, we covered, uh, we selected six companies that we thought were interesting. Stuff we didn't get round to looking at was uh, Delarue Interims. Now, I noticed that the shares have recovered quite strongly um, on that one, and the interim results were down 8%. <clears throat> I did put that on my on my speculative list for 2023, which I didn't actually publish, but it was because I decided I shouldn't really be... Uh, you know, I shouldn't really be flagging up highly speculative situations to people in case they went wrong. But it was on the, the, the same spreadsheet that I've given people access to on a different tab. So the more inquisitive uh, people who look at the tabs would have spotted it. So I sort of left it out there. But anyway, which actually, funnily enough, it ended the year uh, up. Not much, about 3%. But that was despite taking two almost complete wipeouts in the shape of the dreadful Wan Disco and also Polarian Imaging. Uh, but despite that, because it had some stunning uh, outperformers as well, uh, it, it overall it did okay. So quite surprising. Anyway, Delarue was on that list as a potential recovery and it, it, it bombed out earlier in the year, but it has recovered quite nicely. So maybe might be worth a fresh look at that at some point if you have the time. 
What else? We didn't look at net call because that was just an inline update, which we don't normally cover unless we particularly like the company. Time finance we didn't look at, but I saw some of the readers were commenting on that. And Cyan Canode interims. I've never thought anything much of that company, so I just don't want to waste time on on um, poor quality companies. In a similar vein, a company called Feedback. I started looking at accounts, but saw that it was generating negligible revenues and a heavy cash burner. So again, we don't want to waste your time with stuff like that. We try and focus on the more interesting, um, better quality businesses. So Graham looked at one media IP <coughs> trading update. This is only 12 million market cap. It does digital rights, uh, uh, digital music rights, and um, it's also got some sort of small... Oh, that's it. Anti-piracy software subsidiary. Graham's just amber on this one. He says the whole thing's subscale. I think that's probably right. I do remember, though, I had a look at One Media IP a little while ago, and I thought there was the kernel of an idea there. There might be something quite interesting in there. So uh, I'm probably a little bit more positive than Graham for the potential. But he is right. that The trouble is, if they want to keep buying up more music rights, they're going to have to dilute issue the equity to do it. Now, the bombshell of the day was super dry, S-D-R-Y. As you know, if you're a regular, I've been highly sceptical about this this fashion brand, which I think has had its day, really. Um, <clears throat> and the problems, the financial problems, began well before the uh, pandemic. So I think this is a, a business, a brand in structural decline. And I mean, the shares are now just really option money. It was down 14% to only 36p, roughly 100 million shares in issue. So 36 million market cap, which is tiny uh, for the size of the business and if it's able to execute a turnaround. The trouble is the turnaround to date, as I've repeatedly said on this one, has been on paper. No, sorry, it hasn't been on paper. It's been in the words coming out of Julian Dunkerton's mouth. <laughs> And not in the commercial reality. I know he says, oh, people sniping from the sidelines, blah, blah, blah. Fair point, you know, to the founder and big shareholder of a company. It's bound to be painful to pe to hear people uh, making uh, often poorly informed commentary on the business. But, you know, I'm an XFD for a clothing retailer, so I know how these businesses work. Although that was a long time ago in the 1990s and early noughties. You know, the main dynamics of it don't really change much. And... Anyway, this was a this was an absolute howler of a of a of a profit warning from Superdry. They didn't quantify it, but they they just said uh, performance has basically been poor so far in April to, year to April twenty twenty four to date. Now <clears throat> we can't quantify it because there are no broker updates. But a friend very kindly emailed me the headline numbers from an update from one of the from one of the premium brokers who charge exorbitant amounts to access their research, um, <clears throat> which I don't agree with because they've got pri privileged access and information that they're then uh, letting out to people who pay for it, which is completely wrong. Anyway, I'm told <clears throat> that the, one of the posh brokers has has penciled in um, a, a pre-tax loss of about 45 million quid for the current year, which is a disaster. It means that basically Superdry has been selling off assets, raising cash uh, uh, as best it can, um, and it's all disappearing out the door basically because the trading losses are now very substantial. I, I've 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 maintained the view for a while now that I think the the end game for Superdry is probably it goes bust, but I don't see any immediate 
trigger for that because um, <clears throat> you know it, it it got in thirty about thirty five million quid from selling the IP in the Far East, which does show that there's value in the brand and it says other deals may be possible. So who knows? I think it keeps lurching along for the time being, but I'd be surprised if it, if it survives calendar 2024 in its current form obviously the brand will survive in some shape or form but um whether the listed company and its shares uh, uh benefit from that i don't know but anyway um it's a very very uh, it's a worrying and high risk situation so personally i'm not tempted to catch this particular falling knife and it's very very difficult for these fashion brands to turn themselves around once they get into a, a real decline like this because there are so many substantial fixed costs mainly around the leases on the properties that you can't get out of and um, Superdry's figures shows that it's got some really really badly loss making shops and the wholesale channels doing really badly as well which tells you that the customers just don't see um, don't see value in the products that the, you know they're charging premium prices for uh, products that um, are overpriced basically and that's why the wholesale buyers are not interested in buying them so yeah i've um i've marked it as black for the spreadsheet which is a profit warning but also on fundamentals i'm still red on super dry i wouldn't take the risk but it but these things are often very volatile when they get close to zero you know so for traders you can get sharp rebounds on it but i think it's best not to not to be sucked into those sorts of things. Now, another interesting company I looked at, but more positively, is Tristel, T-S-T-L. This one we followed for donkey's years. I remember seeing management when the shares were about a pound each, and it looked quite good, actually. That was just a, an investor presentation. <coughs> Very small niche business, but <coughs> 200 now, it's for £4.55. Um, £216 million market cap. What does Tristel do? It does... Um, uh, uh, disinfection products, specialist disinfection products for hospitals. And of course, during the pandemic, when a lot of operations were delayed and these disastrous lockdowns were done, which I think has created far worse of a health crisis uh, than they actually solved. But anyway, you know, that's with the benefit of hindsight, isn't it? There's lots of people on, you know, 7 million people on waiting lists in the UK, and I'm sure it must be similar in, in some other countries as well. Hence, you get loads of people off sick, so there's a shortage of qualified people, and oh, it's all a complete mess, isn't it? It's going to take years to 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 recover from the uh, effects of those lockdowns. And why isn't the inquiry doing a cost-benefit analysis on the lockdowns and telling us have they actually caused more harm than than any good? Did they did they do any good in the first place at all? We don't know, do we? Um, it seems to me just getting a load of, of bickering politicians in to bicker with lawyers is absolutely pointless. 100 million waste of time and money, that inquiry is, and it's not addressing the, the questions we actually need the answers to. But never mind, that's my rant of the day. Anyway, Tristel, back to this. I, I must admit, I was really impressed with this trading update at its AGM. I've said here the H1 update is brimming with positivity. Uh, it doesn't directly say anything about full-year expectations, which was a strange omission. I don't like it when companies dodge uh, that question, because that's the one question we need the answer to in a trading update. So not to address it, whether you're trading in line with expectations for the full year or not, that's the question. So not answering that question just raises my hackles and makes me think, hmm, 
there, there's a reason why they've not mentioned that. What is the reason? Are they not sure? Are they, you know, is trading going wrong? It just raises more questions than it answers. So I wish the PR advisors and the brokers would just tell companies, be brief and be direct with your trading updates. Just tell us if you're trading in line with expectations or not. That's all we need to know. Uh, but anyway, I don't think in this case there's there's cause for alarm because Cavendish, many thanks for this, put out a, a good update where they pointed out that based on the seasonality of the business, the, the revenue uh, that's been um, indicated for H1 this year is looks as if it's actually trending ahead of expectations. So it seems to me, and from reading Cavendish's note, that the next couple of trading updates could well be ahead of expectations with Tristel. So for that reason, I'm less perturbed about the very high valuation on the shares than I would otherwise have been. And it is producing very good organic growth on terrifically high gross margins as well, which means you've got great operational um, uh, gearing on the, uh, increases in revenues. And as hospitals, I suppose, are trying to begin to eat into the lockdown backlogs, you know, that's probably going to be good for business. So I've said here, as always, this share looks very pricey. It's on a really premium PE rating. And basically, it's up to you if you want to pay up for the growth and the quality or not. <laughs> I'm, I'm not in the business of telling people what to do. As you, as you know, we're not tipsters. We're just um, analysing things and giving an opinion. Anyway, I felt I had to go amber green on Tristel. So it would have been green if the shares were 30 or 40% cheaper. So it's expensive, but good, is my conclusion with Tristel. Oh, this was an interesting one. Lots of readers uh, commented on this as well. Graham looked at Cavendish Financial, CAV, which put out it. I think these were the first set of accounts since it merged. So it's FinCap and Senkos who've merged. Uh, it's got a very healthy cash balance of £17 million. Uh, Graham said here that was at the time of writing over half the market cap. I had a look at the balance sheet as well myself independently and I thought it looked very good. Couldn't see any nasties in there, although do note that the lease liabilities are quite substantial. So possibly uh, two swanky offices in central London, maybe. I don't know how they deal with those. Maybe they have Connexit, one of them, or I don't know if they have already or not, because they've announced a lot of cost synergies. £7 million of operating cost synergies. Uh, we both like it. We both think it looks very cheap. Although, as I've pointed out, I mean, well, as Graham pointed out, obviously it is Cavendish is still losing money at the moment. But obviously all you really want with these brokers or investment banks, whatever, whatever you want to call them, all you really want from them is from them to not lose too much money in a market downturn. Because these are highly cyclical geared businesses that make a ton of money when, the, when, when markets are buoyant. And then you want them to kind of break even roughly in the quiet years. And obviously conditions are very quiet at the moment, but that will change. These things always recover. The only uncertainty is the timing. So we both, Graham and I, we both think this could be a good sort of ground floor entry point for Cavendish Financial. If I had any spare cash, I'd probably have picked up a few myself. But then I remembered how illiquid they were uh, when it was just FinCap. The shares, I mean, barely traded. Um, you know, and they just drifted down constantly because, I mean, these businesses are mainly run for the benefit of the staff, it has to be said, and who, who get geared bonuses in the good times. Um, so I don't know, such a, but it should be a bit more liquid now it's merged with Senkos because you've got a, a, a bigger 
shareholder base. I don't know. I think it's good that they've merged. We could probably do with fewer um, but better uh, businesses of this kind, broking type businesses. Anyway, moving on, Exchange XR. I had a look at this one. It's hopeless. Hopeless. Down 27% on another profit warning. Contracts have slipped. I mean, I read the announcement, the commentary, and I thought some of, you know what, the activities that they do of these sort of virtual reality type uh, communications uh, and, and, and huge walls for, for big conferences where people can all interact. It does sound interesting, and they've got some interesting contracts. So I'm not dismissing the product. I think the product looks potentially interesting. But it's a bit subscale. It's well below where it needs to be to become a viable business. And it is loss-making significantly, particularly after it's fallen way short of the forecasts for calendar 23 due to contract slippage. It says, well, I don't really care what the reason is. You know, if you've missed your targets by a country mile, then you've missed your targets, haven't you? It does have enough, enough cash for the time being, though. Uh, but of course, it's burning through that cash gradually. But I don't see an immediate cash crunch at Exchange XR. And at 11 million market cap, I don't know, maybe it's worth a punt if you're prepared to risk your money in a, with a fairly cavalier attitude. I don't know. Uh, next one I looked at, very, very interesting company, Global Ports Holding, GPH put out interim results. Now, the shares here have done really, really well, and it's a complicated share to untangle. It owns the operating rights to operate a, a, a large number of cruise ship ports, um, all financed with massive debts, and this is the problem. I don't know if the equity is worth anything here, you know, at Global Ports Holding, because um, the debt is now becoming a lot more expensive. It's mainly financed with... Um, with uh, a lot of private placement notes. I think they were carrying a coupon of 7 or 8% or something, um, which is not particularly excessive. And that was the thing that surprised me, that given um, it's, it's weakish, well, it's weak balance sheet, I was quite surprised it was able to achieve bond refinancing at that sort of level. Um, but the trouble is you can t you can see the toll it takes on the P&L in the finance costs, which basically use up all the operating profit, which leads to the question, is it going to be able to pay dividends again? Now, if you look back to pre-pandemic, it was a generous dividend pair. But of course, that was in the era of zero interest rates when the, it was financed with all this cheap debt. Well, the debt's now a lot more expensive. So... I just don't know. I couldn't really come to a conclusion on, on Global Ports Holding, but I've gone amber red because it, it, it is very highly geared with quite expensive debt, which you know raises lots of questions, not necessarily about solvency, but you'd certainly have to really research this in depth and look at what covenants, if any, there are with the debt. You know, it's a special situation. I wouldn't get involved personally, but I have to acknowledge that the shares have done very, very well. Also, it's got a controlling major shareholder. I don't like that because they can often do something um, that's in their interests, but not in anyone else's interests. So uh, I tend to avoid companies with a dominant over, well, a dominant shareholding. Uh, I think it's over 50% in the case of GPH. So it's not for me, but the shares have done very, very well. So uh, a nice little punt for anyone who got involved there. Right, on to Wednesday, 20th of December. Graham um, covered for me this day. Thanks, Graham. Uh, some quite interesting companies. He looked at DP Eurasia. This is the Domino's Pizza thing in Turkey. 
uh, quite <laughs> obscure why it's listed in London, I have no idea. But anyway, it's been quite an interesting recovery situation. Graham's covered this for a while, actually, for um, and been sort of untangling the situation in Turkey, where, of course, they have hyperinflation. Um, so for anyone who doubts the need for, you know, reasonably tight uh, government policies and central bank policies, you've only got to look at countries like um, uh, Turkey for what well, for what not to do and what happens if, you know, governments are, are, are reckless and irresponsible with financial policy. Um, you get hyperinflation. Anyway, um, there's a bit of... Oh, this is another one with a controlling shareholder, DP Eurasia, and um, they've been trying to buy it out on the cheap, an 85p cash offer, which they've up to 95p. Now, very interesting. I looked at this myself as well. I looked at the uh, the response from the company, which they're saying um, that it um, that it's, it fundamentally undervalues the company, even at 95p. And it goes it it shows some evidence for that, which I thought was quite interesting. A table of other Domino's pizzas companies, which shows that the multiple of EV to EBITDA for DP Eurasia is a, only a fraction, about a third of some of the other ones, like DP Poland, which I have to say, I think is an absolute crock. But somebody's telling me the new management at DP Poland are actually turning it round. I mean, at long last, it's been a, a serial loss maker for many, many years. But anyway, back to DP Eurasia. It, so it now looks as if um, uh, uh, management are still trying to fight off Jubilant is the name of the uh, controlling shareholder who's trying to take it private on the cheap by the looks of it. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. What have we got here? Uh, what's next? Uh, Goodwin. Oh, yes, this is one of my top picks for 2023, which has done very, very well. Um, it put out the interims. It seems to have dropped 8% on the interims. Profits are up nicely. I see good margin. Now, the main story at Goodwin is that it was focused on the oil and gas market. It's an engineering group. And it then um, spent several years really laying the groundwork to diversify into other uh, areas, including making sort of ceiling boxes for nuclear, spent nuclear fuel, I believe. And it has a very, very large order book. Uh, we're not seeing much um, information they're coming out in terms of broker updates, um, but it sounds here, because it is a sort of private family control business that happens to have a listing, but Graham's flagged here, um, it sounds like shareholders have got through to management about this, and they've said that they've listened to um, shareholder inquiries at the AGM, and we've uh, recognised the importance of providing more frequent updates. Isn't that brilliant? I think that's really fantastic. So it just shows that talking to management, going to an AGM, and uh, uh, you know, telling them ways in which they could communicate better and get broker coverage out and so on, in this case anyway, does seem to have paid off. And well done to management at um, Goodwin for, for listening and being prepared to, uh, you know, a lot of these private companies, management can be very arrogant and just dismiss private shareholders as irrelevant. But Goodwin uh, has really impressed me, actually, with their response on that. Uh, it is a punchy valuation on Goodwin. I haven't looked at the numbers yet myself, so I will do, because I've got to write a review for it on my year-end um, update. Now, here's an interesting one. Tortilla. 
Mexican Grill, M-E-X. It's a chain of about 80 sites, uh, uh, fast casual Mexican style food. And it's very nice, very tasty. I like the product myself. Um, and um, now it put out a mild profit warning by the looks of it, but the market cap has only dropped down to about 19 million. I have to say, I think that's too cheap. It's only about a quarter of the price that it was floated at, despite the fact that it has um, expanded, it's opening more sites. Uh, £19 million too cheap. So for me, I read the accounts myself, and then I've, I've actually um, uh, started buying some shares in it myself around 50p. I think risk-reward is pretty good at that level. Now, obviously, it's not trading particularly well, although it's okay. I mean, like for like... Sales adjusting for the VAT benefit in last year's were up 5%. Okay, that's below inflation, but it's not bad, you know. Not bad. Remember, like for like sales means stripping out the effect of opened or closed stores to tell you what the underlying picture is. And it says here, performance slightly behind previous expectations. <gasps> oh, there we go. <laughs> There's the hiccup. I did look at um, the broker update. Um, so it's effectively trading just above break even now. But when we just had a massive consumer uh, disposable income squeeze, I would argue that that's actually not bad. And it is cash generative because of the, lot, the heavy depreciation charges on the uh, store fit outs. It says, I think, somewhere that it's still seeing favourable conditions for opening new sites. Also, of course, the cost inflation on energy and on food has been very substantial. So it's managed to absorb all of that without becoming uh, loss-making. So I think this could be an interesting recovery situation. And it wouldn't surprise me if private equity or investment buyers might start sniffing around it as well. Um, because we saw, didn't we, the, the interest in restaurant group, which of course is much, much larger. But I think, um, <coughs> you know, Tortilla could be, well, it, it is a self-funding rollout so far. It's got about, I think, 85 or 87 sites in the UK. I think there might even be one or two international franchisees. It's got a franchise arrangement with uh, SSE, I think it is. The, or is it SSP? The, I can't remember. But anyway, look, it's got, it's got several interesting irons in the fire. I would just say on a cyclicality basis, it's probably at the low point for profitability because it's had to absorb hefty increases in costs. Oh, and of course, living wage increase in April will be, will be a nasty headwind. But also the customers are people who are probably earning living wage or a decent chunk of them. Um, because it's quite a nice filling, affordable product, I would say. About £8.50 for a you know a pretty hefty uh, uh tortilla with chicken in it and rice and it's pretty you know it's healthy-ish food you, you don't have to have the sour cream on it or the cheese if you don't want to if you want to make it a bit more healthy it's very it's a nice tasty filling meal i i as i say i i like the product i would never buy into a hospitality company unless i actually enjoy the product myself i think maybe they're missing a trick on marketing uh, at Tortilla. They just seem to open shops and then nothing much happens. You know, they're waiting for customers to find them. I'd like to see them out on the street, you know, giving people a, 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 a little taster, a little sample of the product. Because the product, once you taste it, it speaks for itself. It's very, very good uh, at Tortilla. It's one of the best. I think Chilango is still my favourite. But Tortilla actually bought Chilango and they converted some of the sites into 
um, tortillas, which I was really surprised at. But they've said that there's been a big uplift in performance, so you can't argue with that, can you? Uh, they've kept one, which is local to me when I'm in London, in um, Upper Street on uh, in Islington. And I go there nearly every day when I'm up in London, so I must be one of their top customers. And the product, the Chilango product is better than tortilla, but they grill the chicken uh, in-house at the time, which costs more. Uh, but you can taste the difference in my view, although tortilla have improved their chicken more recently, I must admit, uh, which I did mention to the FD when I had a meeting with him uh, last year. I popped into their London office and... Uh, uh, you know, it's a nice business, I think, Tortilla. So anyway, I finally, I've been watching, waiting on that one. I finally dipped my toe in with a sort of medium-sized position. Um, so obviously I'm talking my own book there. It could drift down or it could it could rebound. I don't know. Um, but I think it's, I think risk reward at around 50p is pretty good for Tortilla. Okay, moving on. Mission Group, what was this, TMG? Oh yes, we had a, a nasty profit warning from this in october what what's what's um what's graham saying here oh it's cutting costs quite deeply um trying to dispose of non-core subsidiaries and they've got a bank covenant waiver for december so it's you know as we already knew it's a distressed financial situation i can't believe management have done this again i don't know if it was the same management as who got it into financial trouble last time or not but you know they just keep buying stuff they borrow too much money and when the economy turns down they get into financial trouble so deeply unimpressive i have to say so yeah i'm not i'm just not interested in that one right that was that covers all of the stuff on wednesday 20th of december Right, Thursday, the 21st of December, everybody's obviously winding down uh, for Christmas, was, the, was, was very little news, but we did manage to find two companies to write about. There was a fundraise from SRT Marine Systems, ticket also SRT. If you remember, this is a very long-standing uh, AIM company, I think it's been on listed about 18 years, uh, constantly jam tomorrow, jam tomorrow, has the occasional good year and then moves back into losses the following year. So it's got really a lamentable um, track record. But anyway, it's raised ten and a half million in fundraise. We did flag um, in November that it, it was looking financially distressed. So I'm actually pleased to see it raise cash because, you know, these businesses, cash burning businesses like this one, you know, you they need to be properly financed. And it got a fund rate raise away at a valuation of about pre-money of about 70 million quid, which I think is very, very generous given the, the, the track record. It's raised money at, um, where is it? Let me scroll down. Was it 35p? Uh, yeah, discount of 16% to the, last, the previous night's closing price. Um, now, it's done a three million pound placing. So I go through all the detailed terms of the fundraise. Now, the most interesting bit, though, is it's got seven million. So the bulk of the fundraise from a strategic investor, which is a company called Ocean Infinity, which uh, SRT calls a highly reputable marine technology company. Well, it's in the same um, space, in the same market then as, as SRT. So I see that very positively. I think that is a nice sort of validation of SRT from another company in the industry. And Ocean Infinity says that it's at the forefront of robotic technology deployed to gather data from the oceans, which is, you know, similar to what SRT does. SRT does these uh, location uh, uh, transponder type uh, 
at things, which I would have thought would be pretty low-tech, but apparently it seems to be a niche market, um, and it's not low-tech, uh, or so they say. Now, the dilution isn't too bad on this fundraise. That's the, Obviously, you look at the discount to the price, then you look at the level of dilution. Those are the two things, and you want both of those to be as small as possible. The 16% discount on price is, 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 is bad, but not disastrous. But the dilution is only 13.5%, or rather, uh, the, the new shares will, will be 13.5% of the enlarged share capital, which is a, a way to understate the figure, isn't it? The actual enlargement percentage is bigger than that. But anyway, that's by the by. Uh, so I think the discount to the share for the fundraise is probably about right, given the situation it's in, which is that it's financially precarious. And but the, but the dilution is fine. It's not particularly high dilution, and it makes the company much uh, lower risk. So I think overall, I think this fundraise was a good thing. You don't want to be bumping along the bottom. Um, and obviously, to put the money in, the strategic investor and the placing investors will, I, I would imagine, have been given up to date information on on the major orders in the pipeline. Uh, but I've I've stayed negative on it, but I've I've gone from red to amber red, which is mildly negative, to reflect the fact that I do think this fundraise is a good thing. But um it's got a massive H2 weighting expected for it to hit this year's forecasts. So, you know, are we gonna get another profit warning before March twenty-four? It's it's possible, isn't it? Maybe there'll be a bit of euphoria when these huge orders actually do come to fruition, but uh uh, I think really because it's been the same old story for 18 years, <clears throat> you know, maybe it's day in the sun has come, maybe it hasn't. I've, I've put here, SRT is definitely a share for optimists only. <laughs> but look, I hope people do well on it and make a bob or two. You know, that's what we're in this game for, isn't it? And Graham looked at cars, which is a special, speciality agriculture and engineering group. Um, I don't think either Graham or I can get excited about this. It's probably priced about right and looks pretty dull business. So there we are. Right, on to Friday, the 22nd of December. Now, basically, it looked like everyone had uh, everyone had um, vacated their offices or virtual offices and were on holiday because there was just nothing, apart from uh, nothing on the news wire, which is almost unprecedented but uh well there was one item which was an adm agn update from plexus which pos as regulars know it's by far my biggest personal holding it's been a 10 bagger over the last year and i think there's potentially a lot more in the juice in the tank i think um it's only 20 million market cap it's coming alive again the bull case is basically that it won a huge contract in march that was then extended again from 5 million to 8 million in July or August, which was the point I it appeared on my radar and I bought up a, a, a chunky position in the company, in Plexus. And the bull case is basically that the current year is now uh, going to see a 600% increase in revenue and a move into a modest profit after years of consistent sort of 4 to 6 million losses. So the company's coming alive again. I mean, that's fact, not fiction. And uh, all I ever do is flag up what's in the RNS and what's in the broker notes. So uh, people criticise me for constantly talking up my own book. I'm not. I'm just yeah, I'm just flagging the facts. And then uh, who knows what will happen in future? We don't know. Anyway, I, I was slightly disappointed with the AGM update. I was hoping for a bit more red meat in it. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it talked very positively about the outlook and 
market conditions and everything. But I was hoping for something a bit more specific on contract wins, because that's what we need to propel the shares higher. I think this will be a news flow uh, driven share. Well, to a certain extent, all shares are, aren't they? Um, <clears throat> and, and then, of course, um, when the figures for the current year, which is June 24, start to come through, the interims and the, and the finals, people will suddenly notice, oh, my God, you know, revenues up hundreds of percent and it's now profitable. So I think when those figures come through, that could be a nice catalyst. But it needs to be accompanied with contract win announcements uh, so that we can see that this eight million contract was not just a one off. Um, <clears throat> I went through the annual report the other night in detail, and there's actually some quite nice stuff buried in there, saying that the £8 million contract has scope to be increased again, which is very interesting. It's a rental contract, all recognisable in one year, which means this company's got really valuable IP. Um, and I don't, know, I don't know what equipment they've got, whether it's fully depreciated or what, but... Um, you know, because there's nothing much on the balance sheet. But if they're getting eight million in a one-year contract for rental, then that tells you there's some there's some value in this company, significant value. It's got products and IP that you know are generating highly profitable contracts or contract anyway. Uh, all the other contracts that they mentioned today have been very small, you know, 100,000, 200, that, that sort of level, which obviously isn't enough. We need either lots of small contracts or some bigger whopper type contracts. But anyway, I think it's set up nicely. Um, they're scrabbling around for cash everywhere they can find it. They've sold off another chunk of treasury shares, so all the treasury shares have gone. They were around 19 to 20p. So I think that's quite significant that institutions or high net worths are you know, comfortable with the price around 1920p. And interestingly enough, now it's sort of traded more or less sideways in a zigzag fashion since about August, September. So I'm very comfortable with that. You know, uh, quite a few uh, people who've criticised me over this share, you know, have said, oh, it's just a short term spike up in price. It's 10 bagged, you know, you should be banking your profits and all of which are perfectly valid comments. But anyway, they've been proven wrong. It wasn't a spike up in share price. Uh, to 20p it's held that level now for about five months so i think we're building a nice base here but to, pro to propel plexus higher i think it needs specific positive comments uh, and contract news it needs to be driven by news flow um, all i would say though is i think that industry and sector tailwinds are now really strongly positive for plexus because the whole industry is now being forced to focus on stopping methane leaks, which is precisely what Plexus's products are designed to do. Uh, you know, and it talks about that it wants its products to become and should become industry standard wellheads globally. Well, imagine if that happened. I mean, OK, that's a long shot. But uh, the CEO said in, in the commentary, you know, look, it's very difficult now for the oil companies to install substandard wellheads that um, when we that when we can show we've got the technology that is leak proof, uh, leak free for life, uh, and it's tried and tested. This product's been around decades. It used to be a, prof a very nicely profitable company with a market cap that peaked at about three hundred million pounds. So this is not some jam tomorrow, uh, fly by night thing. You know, it's a proven company in the past, but they then sold off. Um, some key uh, technology to Technip in order to stay afloat, basically. But they've re-entered that market now. The non-compete has expired, and they've got a fresh family of patents. So I think I think look, Plexus. Yes, of course, it's speculative, but in the current year now, it is going to be modestly profitable. So it shouldn't be b burning operational cash burn anymore for that reason. 
Uh, but I think they're using every penny they can get their hold on for buying more inventory to rent out. So, yes, it probably still has a cash requirement, which was flagged in October 2022. Uh, but anyway, uh, obviously I'm not selling any because I'm in this for the long term. I didn't sh see any short-term catalyst in the AGM update uh, to... Uh, propel the shares any higher, shall we say. But, you know, it doesn't matter. It'll take its time. You know, I'm in this for the long haul. And so far, obviously, I'm thrilled at uh, the performance from the shares and thrilled that the big uplift from 2p to 20p has held. Uh, so, yeah, very, uh, very positive outlook for, for Plexus, I think. But we need more specific contract news to confirm that it's not all, uh, you know, hope. It's, it's reality that we need to see that oil majors are starting to come back and, and actually use its product, in which case the upside could be gigantic. We don't know. So uh, I, I just like the, the, the risk reward on this one at the moment. and We'll see what happens. But no immediate catalyst for another surge in, in, in Plexus's share price from the AGM update, which is a bit disappointing. But, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, was it? Oh, just quickly as well, another one I spotted that we didn't write about because it was too small was ADVFN, uh, the long-standing financial prices website, I would call it really. Uh, a lot of us use its app because you can use it free and get uh, streaming prices, which almost immediately freeze, but they, they stay on the screen. So you can then just sort it in price order. Anyway, it's uh, 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 and obviously it's absolutely chaotic bulletin boards, which are not moderated. So they're full of, full of people hurling abuse at each other, <laughs> which is, can be quite amusing, I must admit, in a sort of, you know, horrific type of way. So, well, anyway, ADVFN uh, was long allegedly um, a um, basically a big expense account for its directors, which is an interesting point, actually, that, uh, you know, really should the rules be changed so that directors remuneration reports should include how much they put on their expense account? I think it should. And I bet you some of them would be an absolute eye opener. Uh, the amount of foreign travel and luxury hotels and all the rest of it, you know, that you often hear about from really tiny companies. And ADVFN is one of them. Again, I don't know because I've not seen, seen the figures, but I was told that the previous management used really did uh, use the company as a, as I say, as a as a, a way of funding a lavish lifestyle on expenses. Anyway, there we go. Um, <clears throat> well, the interesting thing is it's now changed control, and I read the. Uh, accounts and I hadn't realised it's done a big fundraise so it's now got plenty of cash in the bank five or six million and the market cap wasn't much more than that I think it was about eight or nine million so I thought well that's not bad I like things that are sort of two-thirds backed by net cash and the new management seemed to be doing an awful lot to close down lots of you know uh, subsidiary type operations that haven't really worked they're shutting those down they seem to be doing all the right things to cut costs basically and th there was also some intriguing stuff about new product pipeline of things they're gonna do which will uh, supposedly make the business much better so as a little punt i thought you know what i'm gonna grab a few of these so i i'm now a minor shareholder in awfn which surprises me, but obviously I'm not making a judgment on the business or the bulletin boards or anything like that. I'm just saying that, uh, I don't know, as a turnaround, it might might be interesting. And it seemed to find buyers uh, amongst other people as well. The shares went up for 10 or 20%, I think. So just as a little side punt, the fact that it's cash-backed, 
uh, I think it's moderately interesting, as purely as a punt. Right, I'll leave it there. Sorry, this has rambled on for far longer than I was expecting. This is meant to be a short one. I'll leave it there and wishing you all a fabulous Christmas. I hope you have a lovely break and I hope your portfolios have done all right. After this Santa rally, I think most people should be back into uh, uh, you know re a much better position than we were in at some of the worst points during 2023, which has certainly been a very challenging year. I think 2024 should be much, much better based on the facts and figures that I've currently got. So I think we've got um, a, a new bull market to look forward to. Um, certainly UK small caps remain very, very good value in many cases, and that's backed up by all the takeover bids, showing that this market is just structurally underpriced. And that's the type of market I want to be in and I want to be bullish about. You know, you've got to remember that your sentiment needs to be the reverse of what the market's doing. You know, so when it's absolutely bombed out, irrationally cheap, that's the time we should be the most positive and the most excited, not hiding in cash, because then you'll miss the rally, won't you? That's the thing, in my view. Anyway, yes, so uh, very tough year, but we got through it. And uh, I'm not sure what's happening with the small cap value reports. I normally do them as normal between Christmas and New Year. It's obviously very light for news, but you can sometimes get profit warnings and things. But um, head office have said they don't uh, require them between Christmas and New Year, which, OK, gives me some time to do my uh, year end updates and so on and to pick my uh, top ideas for 2024, which I'm currently working on. Um, but I would have liked to have really kept the small cap value reports going, even as just somewhere for people to put uh, their comments on the daily news. But uh, I'm sorry about that. They've, I've been told that they're not required. So um i'm pushing back against that because i think they they should be should carry on but anyway we'll see um we'll see what happens i don't know um right that's it happy christmas and uh bye for now bye <laughs>